As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? But do you have any sense of when it is realistic that like a feature film, for example, either animated or whatever real life can be made in a way that's effectively you know done without actors or done basically you just write it and it you know text to video it becomes a thing i do not think it's that far away i think that the basic technologies to do that are starting to be released now i would say within a year or two we will be able to have what we can somewhat defensively call a feature film that is 80% driven by these technologies. Hello and welcome back to Danny in the Valley. How was everyone's new year? I feel like I can't even speak about New Year's because it's been like 10 days already, which feels, you know, like a va- uh, you know violation of the statute of limitations. So apologies. But I hope you had a fantastic break. I certainly did. I overindulged. So now I'm trying to recover a bit, you know, get back to my fighting weight. And here we are in 2024. And while it is a new year, not a ton has changed. AI is still the thing that is roiling virtually every industry in Hollywood is no different. So to that end, we have a fabulous guest this week. He is right at the forefront of that change. Martin Adams is a co-founder of a company called Metaphysic.ai. They have developed some really incredible technology that uses AI to transplant a star's face onto someone else's body to de-age people if a film needs someone to look a little younger than they are, etc. And I came across Metaphysic recently at an AI event, and they had a screen up on the stage next to where uh, Martin was talking with a journalist. And as they were talking, they transplanted Martin's face onto the face of the journalist who was interviewing him. Very spooky. So it's happening in real time, which just gives you a a sense of the power of this technology. Anyhow, amid the avalanche of ideas around AI, this one strikes me as very interesting, not least because it really strikes right at the heart of the recent labor dispute in Hollywood, where actors were fighting to retain their ability to charge for the use of their image, even if it is generated by a computer. And indeed, the tech has got so far as you're about to hear, that we're entering a world where prominent people and even perhaps less famous folks will have to start copywriting themselves, their digital selves. So we cover that and much more, including Martin's early days in London, putting on massive raves on the side of motorways, getting arrested, all kinds of fun stuff. So this is a fun one. 
Welcome back, and I now hand you over to my conversation with Martin Adams of Metaphysic. Enjoy. Well, thank you for taking the time. I saw you speak at this AI event the other week, and I was fascinated because you were on stage next to the MC, which was, I think he was a journalist, talking, and then basically in real time, you transposed your face onto his face and it showed up on the screen next to you, which was just kind of weird. And I kept looking back to his face and he was kind of looked a little bit uncomfortable. And then <laughs> on the screen, his face was your face. It was very, it was very kind of, it was very trippy. But I thought, yep. I was like, oh, that's a really interesting kind of, and that was happening in real time. And I'm sure it's, you can even make it much higher fidelity if you have, you know, the full rig set up. So maybe start from the top. What is metaphysic and why are you guys doing what you're doing? And what are you doing? <laughs> so metaphysics specializes in the use of AI to power photoreal content. So what that means is that we can basically scan anything in the real world. Uh, it could be an object, it could be a, an item of clothing, it could be a room in an environment, it could be a voice, it could be a face. Using our algorithms, we can power that up into, a, into any sort of feed, a, vid- a video feed, a digital experience, and um, do, it, do it at that photo real quality. And that's of huge interest to anyone who's trying to create content that might require those things, especially someone's likeness. Um, some people are very busy and the ability to scale their identity and their likeness has hitherto been basically impossible. But now um, an athlete, film star, somebody like that can now you know, be scalable, be in more content as long as they're, they've given their data and given their permission, obviously. And I think it's also interesting for anyone who's trying to sort of create standout internet moments that are interesting shared experiences where you wouldn't be able to create them but for the existence of these sort of AI-powered algorithms. You guys were the company that did the, the, the Tom Cruise like viral videos, correct? Yeah, most of that stuff predates sort of the company formation, but it, it showed us what was possible and if you just explain what those were, I mean, I imagine a lot of people will know what we're talking about, but some won't. Yeah. So Chris Umay, one of the founders of, of Metaphysic before the company started, was sort of, I guess, really showing what the state of the art was through a series of sort of satirical online clips of a younger version of Tom Cruise kind of doing various satirical Tom Cruise things, being being very extreme, being very intense. But I think from the technology side, what was interesting is, you know, there was a reaction online of like, just wow, this is this is AI powered and it's essentially indistinguishable from from the younger Tom Cruise. And so in us as founders, it created a kind of realization that there was a there was a market opportunity here and and that there was a way of my background and, and the background of the CEO of the of the business, Tom Graham, is um, is as lawyers. We we met at Harvard Law School thirteen years ago. And we were kind of pretty convinced that the doing this sort of with consent and doing it with the you know with permission data sets of of talent was was the way to actually build a company around it. And so that's what Metaphysic as a company does. It works sort of directly with talent, works with agencies, works with studios, sort of works really on all sides to bring to life content that that, as I mentioned, would otherwise be impossible. 
And what were those videos, those Tom Cruise videos? Sort of starting maybe as long as three and a half years ago. The whole world is online during lockdown. Digital viewership rates are going through the roof. We're all looking for a little bit of a distraction and kind of something funny and tongue-in-cheek like that comes along. And for, for most people, I'm sure it just was a kind of like, oh, that's a snackable bit of content, move on. But uh, I think for us, I mean, my background has been sort of using machine learning and big data to, to influence, hopefully to improve creative outputs and, and the creative and cultural and entertainment industries across music and marketing media. And so when we looked at that, we saw that there was, it wasn't just a kind of move on moment. There was a wow this is going to you know, give storytellers an opportunity to tell stories that they couldn't otherwise. And thinking with a more macro lens, you know, as we move towards whatever we want to call it, the metaverse, the immersive internet, spatial internet, whatever we want to call it, we're moving towards a world with you know, the release of MetaQuest and ProVision coming uh, in 24. Like I think we'll realize that world is closer than we, than we thought. We're moving towards a world where we're going to need a lot of content. And so the role of AI in sort of powering not just special kind of remarkable content like that, but just the sort of scale of content that you need to fill all these different media formats and different channels that we're going to have. It was clear that, you know, AI, photo real outputs, permission data sets, that's a really exciting business opportunity, but it's really exciting contribution to like the internet and to, to the lives of audiences yeah. on the internet. So when did you guys start the company? When did you start Metaphysic? We started um, about the middle of 21. So we've been going about two and a half years now. And we've built the team out. We, as I mentioned, started during COVID. And we've really just kind of continued the experiment of being a remote first company. We have an office in LA, which is important to the clients that we serve. But um, we're a remote business and we hire the best, best creative and AI talent in probably 40 countries around the world. So those Tom Cruise videos were three, four years ago. And then if we, more recent history, ChatGPT came out just over a year ago. And that's kind of like the big bang moment for most people in terms of AI. And a bit before that, you had things like Dali, which is text to image that OpenAI did. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, that's really incredible. But I'd love to understand just from your guys' perspective, how the technology has changed or evolved, like how quickly or not is it getting better? Because those Tom Cruise videos were amazing, but I don't know how easy those were to do. And it feels like there's so many companies now that are coming out with all kinds of these different AI tools. And a lot of them are toys and some of them work really well, some of them last well, but it does feel like there's this moment of like this explosion of these AI tools that, are really powerful and really easy to use. And I'm just trying to understand, like, you guys have been doing this before, kind of, quote-unquote, it was cool. Mm -hmm. Like, what is your perspective on how quickly this is developing? Yeah, I think that's spot on. The rate of progress is absolutely shocking. It's amazing. It's remarkable. It kind of, you have to take a step back. It's a hell of a thing to build a strategy in a business around a technology that is evolving that fast because... <laughs> This is one of the most fascinating things I, I, I hear from people in the AI world is like, you know, oh, yeah, we're building an AI company, but it's, it's, like, it's just like being revolutionized every three months, it feels like. Yeah. And, you know, I've spoken to a couple of people in the last week who are writing books on AI. 
And I have like the ultimate compassion for them because I know that the moment they get to the end of their structure, they go back and they look at the beginning and that doesn't make sense anymore. That's not up to date. So it's that philosophical example of like, you know, you're building the ship as you go along. Is it the same, the same ship when you arrive? Like, I think to answer your question, it is improving very, very fast. So on the consumer side, there's more tools and some of them toys, exactly like you said, that are available. And, you know, we can tell the sort of qualitative outputs that are coming from, from the newer ones are better than the ones in the past. When you're more in the sort of back-end nuts and bolts and architectures of these technologies, then you see the speed to get to the same sort of levels or higher levels of quality is just dramatically, dramatically faster. There's less, less human in the loop. Sometimes you want a human in the loop, sometimes for the quality and standard and almost the ethics of the output. Sometimes you want a human in the loop, but the requirement from a human in the loop is less and less and less because of the advancements here. So, you know, it's it's really amazing. And and I think no one has a full picture. Maybe like the board of OpenAI like have the best picture, but like no one has a real full picture of what is just around the corner. And that makes it extremely exciting frankly to to work within because it's the unknown so yeah it's fascinating very 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 fast very dramatic breakthroughs and i think you know look i think there's been a lot of waves of like technological hype we kind of saw that maybe a bit with crypto but with web3 some technology sort of in search of a of a use case and i what is interesting for me about ai is that that's not the case the improvements in the technology are actually improvements in usability and utility and that's an amazing thing that happens like once in a generation at best and i'm curious what you think um i'm sure you saw there was a demo from a company called pika around kind of these like really incredible animations that appear to be just from like text prompts there's what you guys are doing where you're able to clone people in a really high fidelity way like when you step back and look at Let's just talk about one industry, entertainment. What does this mean for the entertainment landscape, especially when we're talking about, and I think you met, you guys touched on this a bit in the, at the AI event around the value of actors and how they monetize their image or their likeness or whatever it may be. And also just how much manpower goes into making really good stuff. And to your point, if there's less and less humans in the loop to create really good stuff with these tools, it feels like that's the kind of an earthquake coming for, for entertainment. You know, we have to make the distinction between the type of business and the goal and the mission of the business. So there's a lot of businesses out there that are building big foundational models that are there with a kind of semi-consumer interface to remove skilled professionals from positions that they've held traditionally um, in that industry. And then there's other businesses that are new tools for people in those positions and that they, they are there to improve, hopefully to like raise the ceiling on the quality and in some instances to enable, to remove the barriers to quantity of the creations that they, that they would normally be involved in. So the first is, who knows whether that's you know job creative the second should be and i think you know metaphysic would fall on that 
on that second level where we are used by people internally in our company and by people who will use the best tools available. And so they are then able to make films that would be impossible. Otherwise, they're able to release those in markets, you know, where the there might be like local translation, for example, using our technology, which means that that's better received by the market, which drives more sales for the market, which means the film distributors are considering that market next time they release a film. So it's, it's genuinely kind of accretive in value. And I think forgetting business type, there's also sort of a question that needs to be asked about why are you doing this? A metaphysic, like we, we variously come from backgrounds in which there you know we respect performance and we respect human creativity and we respect the audience and the kind of like the quality of what they want to receive at the end of the day so we are not so much about automation we're not so much about we don't talk about like driving down the cost of everything it's whereas yeah. there are some businesses that are that are that are built for that and i think look in entertainment you kind of have to be based that you have to start from that that starting point of like reverence for the human storytellers, for the human actors, for the the intuitive producers who know what stories to back. And you kind of have to start with the idea that this entertainment industry is driven by smart, creative humans who are intuitively aware of what other human beings want to receive and experience. And if you come in just with the goal of automation, I think you're in the wrong field. Now, there are other fields where... Sure, it's all about operational efficiency, and uh, but but I don't think the entertainment industry is about that. Uh, I think our goal is some you know is that someone who spent their ten thousand hours and more perfecting their art can express that art more frequently and to a higher quality. Um, that's really sort of our goal, and and I think that will render true to audiences having more options, better experiences, more emotional connection with the content that comes out of that. For me, that's what I'm interested in. Like, I'm interested in the use of technology to create more powerful and more numerous shared experiences that we go, wow, that was amazing. Because I think that that's, personally, I kind of think that's what technology is there for, is to drive that human connection. So can you give some con- uh, like a concrete example or two of what you're talking about when you're talking about that ability to kind of like leverage the 10,000 hours of or the 100,000 hours whatever of Tom Cruise or and this is a really bad example but I'll just use it anyway for example like Steph Curry <laughs> he's a pitch man for Subway right maybe he doesn't want to keep doing Subway commercials but he wants to keep being the face of Subway so like how would that work? Like, would I, I'm 6'4", just like Steph Curry. Could I kind of like be Steph Curry, do the body movements? You just put like, put his face on me, put his voice over my voice, and that becomes the Steph Curry commercial, and he gets, you know, a bit less money from Subway, and but he still remains there. And it's like, you know, because you think about people like Shaquille O'Neal or Snoop Dogg. They're just like, they're they're everywhere. Their pitchmen are everywhere it's incredible mm-hmm. is that kind of what you're talking about or and again that's probably a basic boring example but like if you give an example of what you're talking about when you're sca- the ability to scale and also just w- what is involved in that from the technology perspective like what do you need to make that happen yeah so i, I think the example you give is a kind of hygiene level it, it definitely works if you've got the consent and you've got the data of a of a well-known face 
and voice, then yes, you can have either you could have someone who has a similar body and you sort of place algorithmically place that face on top of them. You know, the original person therefore doesn't need to be on set or can appear in, you know, etc. So Danny, it could be your foray into the into the entertainment and commercial world. Um, we've created it. We've created a job just there. Um, we we live in hope. We live in hope. We live in hope and fear. Yes. the The other thing is, you know, so so there's sort of that scalability. There's also sort of control and flexibility. So certain stories would require de aging, for example. So that sort of that consensual manipulation of digital likeness is also really interesting. So working on a film where we de-age the entire cast for a good hour of the film. And that's not, it means you don't have to get some sort of kid actor who looks a little bit like the star because you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that for more than one scene realistically. So, so there's an example of sort of the flexibility and the control that you can give over identity allows you to, tell that story and obviously that can play out to other areas they have their own kind of ethical and social context that we need to be sensitive to but you know you could manipulate gender you can manipulate um, age as i mentioned you could manipulate ethnicity you could manipulate let's say you take a shot of someone and then that actor um sorry someone's in a film and then that actor dies or for whatever other reason cannot appear back on set to do some reshoots well now they can because the core visual imagery of their of their identity has been captured and so they can be involved in um you know they, they, they can be we can make them smile if they weren't smiling enough on the first shot or we can make them you know in a shot where they we previously didn't have it and that's one of the things that the sag afra strike appropriately i thought dealt with was basically okay so you can use the identity for for a reshoot but at what financial rate do you pay them the same do you pay them more do you pay them less and it basically said you know you pay them you pay them at the same rate um that you would have paid them if they had to come back on set but of course you probably it's probably just easier because you might have engaged a foreign actor or a busy actor who can't be on set because they have other contractual commitments so we've got these sort of um opportunities and eases that open up because we have the technology in the mix and and in terms of sort of your question about what is required you know less and less is required on the data capture side to our point about the quality of the data and the power of the algorithms less and less is required to actually get for a data capture to actually get to the level of like a photo reel output you know, metaphysic, for example, can power onto a body double, as we talked about. It could also power onto a hologram, a digital avatar, um, a virtual human. It can kind of power really onto anything. Yeah. And so it, what is required is really the core focus is in that data capture and then knowing, which is a mixture of, of kind of computational and human intuitive kind of view what is good enough? What is a truly photoreal output that audiences will not have a jarring experience where the emotional yeah. connection that they've got with this character or this performer drops away? That's the art, really. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. 
Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So what is the minimum threshold? If You know, in my Steph Curry example, or whatever, Tom Cruise, do you just need to, like, have him kind of hang around, walk around, do certain things for 10 minutes on camera where he's just like talking and doing his typical body movements or whatever, and that's enough? I mean, is it that basic of a question? For example, there's been examples in the past where like, you know, Fast and the Furious, um, the guy, the actor who died, whose name escapes me now. And they had to finish the film and they kind of did it with computers, but I imagine that was a very expensive, very involved process. What you are all able to do is much less intense, it feels like, to produce a similar result. And I'm just trying to understand kind of what the delta is there. Like, how much do you need to basically create a high-fidelity me or Steph Curry or Tom Cruise or Shaquille O'Neal or whatever? One of the examples I go to is in the in the Gladiator film, Oliver Reed kind of died halfway through shooting. And so they managed to complete that film and there are scenes with him in them, but I'm pretty sure they had a rewrite of the sort of structure of the film and his scenes. And when he's in those scenes, if you're, if you've got a keen eye and you're looking out for it, it kind of weird, like kind of, he's never really facing the camera. It's not how the director would have shot it had he been alive. And so they kind of scraped through, they were limited by what they had, which was very, very little. So, without being too abstract, the more you have, the more you can do. And the more, the more angles that you capture, you know, the more video rather than stills that you're using, the more minutes that you're using to capture um, that high death spread of a person's emotions, of a person's face, of a person's movements, of a person's reactions, etc. facial movements, mouth movements, tongue movements, all of those things the more power and the more options that you have got as a, as a filmmaker, let's say, at that point. But there is, a, there is certainly a, less, a, a lower threshold now than there was even two years ago. And in two years, there'll be a lesser threshold about what, what is enough, what is enough to make this a seamless experience if the actor was, for example, you know, deceased. So um, we have two parts to our business for what it's worth. So one is powering the you know, things we've talked about, powering these sort of photo reel outputs for film, video, branded content, etc. The other is involves a more comprehensive scan that we believe is necessary for all of the future potential uses of a person's identity. So that second sort of part of our business is really a preventative, it's a protective part. We call it metaphysic pro. 
and it's there to give you the best possible fidelity and comprehensive scan of your identity, of your face and your voice from all angles. And then you can take various forms of protection in that. You can register a copyright in that digital likeness. You can appoint us as an agent to essentially police non-permissioned uses of that likeness. And so for those future-proofing use cases, I think a more intensive scan, sort of 30, 40 minutes from all angles, all lighting conditions is what we would sort of push for. But it's not necessary for your average sort of film output content right now. So you can copyright your copy. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you can't copyright your original. So like your face, your voice, you cannot <laughs> copyright, um, which, right. you know, there's various kind of public policy reasons for that. But your digital likeness, you know, there's enough of a human in the loop process there that it's it's essentially it's a creative work and it's a work of authorship. And so it meets the, the definitions of copyrightable ability <laughs> under US law. And what's really exciting about that is, you know, this is all being reviewed by the, the Copyright Office at the moment, but what is so exciting about that is that you, once you have a copyright in your digital likeness, then you avail yourself of the much more mature and familiar and established apparatus for takedowns of non-permissioned uses of that. So you go to YouTube, you go to Vimeo, right. you go to any platform and you say, hey, this is my copyright under DMCA. Like, you got to take this down. And there are teams that are set up for this and they will take that down. If you are relying on the kind of gray rights around state-by-state -state publicity or other stuff, um, it's much more complex. It's much more expensive for you as an individual. It's much more time consuming and it's much less certain that you're going to get control of your identity. So I think that the the government, the the platforms, publishers, they're all sort of grappling with the fact that this technology is here now and it's possible with not as we talked about, Danny, like not that much data to create a synthetic version of, of a person's likeness they're sort of starting to grapple with it. And I'm sure obviously with the elections coming up in 24, um, they'll be thrust, thrust right into the middle of that, of that issue. Yeah. And I want to talk about the elections, but to your point, like I mentioned on previous pods, I've been playing around with some of these cloning apps and you know, it's like speak to the screen for 30 seconds and it'll create a version of me that then I can kind of have it say whatever it wants. And it's, it's a little clunky, but it's actually like still quite impressive that with 30 seconds of video, you can create something that's like, wow, like that's actually like, imagine in a year, this is going to be far better. And, you know, 30 seconds is nothing. And we all live our lives online. So you can see where this goes. Most of those companies are, they will um, kind of provide creative boundaries. So normally it's a person sitting square on looking straight at a at a camera but the input and the output so they can have they can sort of train on very very little data there's a big market for that digital avatars doing welcoming you to your new role in a company or whatever it might be conducting an interview with whatever it might be i think when we think about the future we need to think about the more immersive environments i'm pretty sure that a zoom call a google hangout you know will not be as 2D as it is now of like me sitting one side of a screen, you sitting flat on one screen. We're all, we've already seen the Lex Friedman and 
Mark Zuckerberg podcast, which they did sort of in the metaverse. And it's it's fascinating to see the kind of emotional reaction from Lex Friedman there where he's, you can see he clearly believes this is where his art of interviewing people will more and more go. And so, yeah, I think once we once we move into those sort of more immersive formats, then we'll need to have more sophisticated and heavier lifting kind of data capture to cover all of those angles, all of those lighting conditions, all of those environments that a person might be in. And that's that's more sort of what the metaphysic world is is set up for that future. On the election point, one, are you concerned, just given how well you know the powers of this technology? And two, what are you guys doing or what as either as a company or if you know as an industry to kind of put some guardrails on this because, you know, you have social media paired with the ability to make high fidelity clones in an election year where 60 countries, including America and India and the UK and lots of others, are going to the polls. It feels like a recipe for a disaster. I think you have to start from the position of being concerned. As, as a citizen, you have to because that, you know, you've got more, more of a radar up for the real versus the fake. So I think you, everyone should be starting from a position of concern and sort of skepticism, I guess, almost. Um, what's really interesting is the, there has been most commentators have come to the conclusion so far that the role of this technology in politics has been less obvious, less damaging than they thought it would be at this point, coming into the end of 2023. There were some pretty, pretty bad, pretty obviously not real, not believable deep fakes of Putin around the kind of the launch of the you know, the kind of Ukraine offensive and war. And kind of everyone thought, is this it? Are we about to enter into the the, the, the hellhole of not being able to work out what's real or not? And we, we kind of haven't, um, which I think is interesting. But as you said, the technology is moving towards a position where with less data, you can create more realistic output. So I think um, as a company, you know, Metaphysic does nothing in politics in terms of any sort of creative outputs. We won't work either side of the aisle in any country around politics. It's just an area we don't go into and we don't do anything, you know, without consent. I think those are very clear and simple principles, which other companies should adopt as well. I'm an IP lawyer by training and have worked on some kind of cool cases around like fair use. I worked on the Obama Hope poster case with Shepard Fairey and against the Associated Press and was kind of working with a with a professor at Harvard and we were arguing for a for a non conservative interpretation of fair use, which would allow creation and expression and, and things like that. So I've been on that side of the fence, but there's too many AI companies who are relying on this grey sort of, ah, oh, it's fair use, it's funny, or it's oh, it's just a bit of harmless, you know, it's just really yeah. poking fun. And it's like not really sure about that. Like I'm not, I'm not sure that that should be, I think we should take a stricter approach on fair use. So I would like to see more companies that are servicing studios or brands or servicing anyone in this space come out and stick to those same principles of no politics and, you know, nothing, nothing commercial without consent. Can we talk about you for a second? If go back to when you were in short pants, <laughs> as we mentioned before recording your, you're in Mexico City, you're British, you're 
a lawyer and now you're running this helping run this company like can you just give us the the, the potted history of how you ended up doing what you're doing yeah so as i mentioned sort of always always been fascinated by building kind of shared experiences i'm a big electronic music fan i used to run raves with my my brother and a couple of friends in london that's uh, strangely what got me into using social platforms and cultural data to hold, hold big electronic music raves and i don't mean edm i mean like proper Berghain techno type things in London. <laughs> just, uh, yeah, just to clarify. Um, yeah, please. I'm glad we clarified that. <laughs> yeah, this is this is my reputation on the line here. I don't want to be associated with David Guetta. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so like I saw, you know, that was my this was, this was nearly more than 15 years ago. I saw the power of the internet and social media, but I saw it as a peer to peer platform before brands were on it before people were advertising you know through those mediums and i was like wow this is unbelievable if you think about the source of these you know especially things like social media it started on a dorm you know it started on campus and so i've always been obsessed with the idea of focusing on retaining the purity of that kind of network and one of the ways you do that is just basically obsess yourself with the end user of the audience ask the question is this good for the end user? Like not for the corporations, not for the company, not for the influencers getting paid, but for the actual, the people on the receiving end, people like you and I. So that's kind of, that that Northern Star has driven me through a few different businesses. I was uh, I was at Songkick for a while trying to use big data and, and uh, to, to kind of change the way that live music touring was made. So it was made based on data and, and demand rather than just based on what some middle-aged kind of music agent, you yeah. know, thought that they should go to these cities. Then I set up a business with Tom, uh, who I mentioned, called Codec.ai, which uh, built a, a map of popular culture and the communities that made it up. And I, I sort of, I guess I saw the power of AI in a narrow applied sense to understand what audiences wanted. And then I could see the sort of, that, that business was acquired earlier this year by a New York group called Pentad, Really, really exciting what they're doing there, sort of bringing that to life. So did you grow up in London? I grew up in Essex, which most people outside of the UK don't know, which is really good because it doesn't have the greatest reputation. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> did you grow up in like an entrepreneurial household? Because it feels like, you know, if you're putting on raves and starting companies and doing all this stuff, that's not typical. How did you, was that just a bug you had or is it something that you watched your, you know, with your parents or what? Yeah, my parents weren't as big ravers as I was. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, my, 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 my parents are uh, <laughs> my parents are actually both teachers. So the moving thing for me hasn't been like, how do you create the best business or how do you create a high margin, high scale business? The question for me has been, what are you curious and you passionate about? That's what my parents sort of incalculated in me as as educators and you know my foray into I was a law student and so I should have been doing my homework and sitting in the library but actually it was that it was that curiosity and passion for electronic music and for being and for the shared experience of, of being in a room with a few thousand other people who are experiencing the same consciousness the same music moving at the same rhythm you know experiencing the same lights and sound that shared experience to have more of that experience and to create more of it for my friends and for my community i needed to understand technology 
and big data and start a business to do it sort of properly. So really it was passion and curiosity that came first and then trying to solve that problem led me into understanding data and technology. And um, yeah, I kind of think that's the way, that's the order it should be. And I think it's more fun for the entrepreneur when you do it that way. And I think you actually create, I think you probably get a faster route to creating better companies when you're, when you're driven by passion. Were these raves like branded, like for, for the people who are listening, who were going to raves 15 years ago, would they like recognize a name or an organization that was doing all this? Yeah, we had um, three things. So we had our stuff that we basically nearly got arrested for, like holding Europe's largest flash mob water fight. This was in the age of flash mobs. And um, so it was kind of that thing. <laughs> um, where, was the, where was the water fight? It was King's Cross, King's Cross Station in, oh, yeah. um, in the UK. Was it actually inside King's Cross? Yeah, which is probably why, why it represented a, a public health risk. Oh, wow. That is bold. <laughs> we weren't thinking that one through too much. But uh, the, sort of, the second thing was then the, the sort of non-branded, almost going back to the, the, the days of Orbital and those sort of raves off the side of the motorways. Those ones we don't talk about too much for the, for the legal uh, risk. And then we the kind of hybrid was we had this thing called union, which was because we were students, we said, we're going to breed the next generation of clubbers. You know, electronic music clubs can't take for granted the fact that this culture that I think is very, very important, um, that this culture will always be around. And so you have to kind of think about audience development and breed the next generation of, of clubbers. So we went to clubs like Fabric in London and SE1 in London and basically said, look, we can bring you a high quality professional DJs and, and amazing people, uh, but it will be a student, it will be a student population that will be there, but it won't be like a normal student night of just, you know, alcohol and fights and girls yeah. and boys kind of chasing each other. It'll be music driven. And, and, and they were like, yeah, that's, um, you can do that, but you can't do any public promotion because we want to retain our brand. And that's what led us into these peer to peer social platforms, which were student only at the time. And they said, do what you want on those. I see, I see. Yeah. And then so how does all of that lead to Harvard Law, which sounds like the dotted line between raves on the side of the motorway to Harvard Law? That one's not real straightforward. Yeah. I mean, I always say to people, like young, younger people that maybe I'm interviewing or hiring or, or work, work with me, Life is like a line of it's it's not a it's not a straight line it's like a scatter graph and you kind of do a bunch of random stuff and then you you can draw a line of best fit to make sense of it after the fact basically and I think you know that's that's been my life but we built up um, a business that worked with cultural data owners worked with gatekeepers and influencers and eventually that business was acquired by Vice Media but it wasn't acquired. For the you know it wasn't acquired at the level that it should have been in terms of sort of valuation and that was because it didn't have intellectual property sort of at its at its core and um i became kind of geekily geekily obsessed with ip i was like well i'm not going to build another business and throw all of my time and energy and, and commitment into it if it doesn't retain that value at the end and so I had a place amidst the raves. I did, I did okay in my, 
in my undergrad in the UK and I had a place at Harvard Law and I sort of said, right, I'm going to move away from my what I had been doing, which was jurisprudence and constitutional law and legal theory. I'm going to, I'm going to pivot and I'm going to become an, you know, an IP guy. And so I, I took my, um, yeah, I went to Harvard Law. I did a lot of courses in sort of global digital media, advanced IP law. I worked with a professor that we talked about around the Obama Pope poster Shepard Fairey case. And then the, uh, the big bad law firm that we had, that we had been battling when we settled the case sort of made me an offer that I, I couldn't refuse. And so I went and did that in New York for a while as, a, as an IP lawyer there and threw my principles out the window, <laughs> but learned an awful lot. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, so yeah, the, the, the Harvard law, it was, it was a, it might seem like a kind of strange decision to have been, to, to have made, but it was, it was driven by my past in this kind of this gap that I saw around build, building businesses of value. And it was hugely transformative for me. You know, I met my, one of my business partners, met my wife there. And I think it's changed the way that I build businesses now, not just to put IP at the core, but to put sort of ethics and privacy and data concern and sort of data protection at the core of them. And I, I think if you're building a business for the future, build it with those, those ideas. Lastly, before I let you go, just future gazing a bit, when, again, going back to Hollywood, for example, I know there's already there's already been some kind of AI film festivals where it's like, you know, this weird four minute kind of acid trip of a movie is made all via AI. But do you have any sense of when it is realistic that like a feature film, for example, either animated or whatever, real life? can be made in a way that's effectively, you know, done without actors or done basically you just write it and it, you know, text to video, it becomes a thing. I'm not even sure that should be a goal, but I'm just wondering like how long before you think that's a realistic possibility where you could actually make something that's good. I do not think it's that far away. I think that the basic technologies to do that are starting to be released now. Stability video, you mentioned sort of Pika have some stuff. There's, it's rudimentary, don't get me wrong, and there's a certain style to all of the outputs, which is driven by the limitations of the technology. It's kind of a moving still rather than true video. But I do think that that will advance sort of exponentially. I think some of the, you know, the stuff that Runway ML are doing is really exciting and will play into that. I would say, I mean, it's very, you're, you're a fool for committing to a timeline on this because you're always wrong, obviously. But I would say within a year or two, we will be able to have what we can somewhat defensively call a feature film that is 80% driven by these technologies. Whether it will be any good, I don't personally think so because I, you know, how hard is it to build a elevated platform and put some people on it and call it a, a play? You can put a play on very, very easily, but whether that rises to the level of theatre, I'm not sure. And drama, does it and does it evoke a reaction? I don't think so. I think that the technology world has done a poor job of respecting or appreciating is probably even more upstream than respecting, like of actually appreciating the sort of human skills of storytelling, of building structure of kind of look and feel, all of those things. I think that technologists often do a, a poor job of kind of acknowledging. So I think that will continue to be a barrier to having a meaningfully valuable 
uh, feature film output. But yes, I think it's. I don't. I think on the, in the formal sense of possibility, yeah, I don't think it's it's more than a year or two out. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Martin for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening, for starting your new year off right by dropping everything and putting in a rating or a review of this very fine podcast. So thank you for doing that. I will be writing about, well, actually not tech this week. I might be writing about a little company called Boeing, which has recently had a door fly off uh, in mid-flight. Very scary. But it goes, goes back to my days covering aviation many years ago. But I'll be writing a big piece on that and then back to normal next week with a bunch of tech stuff coming. Um, so do check out the paper or go online at thetimes.co.uk. Find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Email danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. It's great to be back. It's great to have you back, and we'll talk very soon. Bye-bye. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.